This morning, we continue our series, What We Believe, going through the Apostles' Creed. And this morning, our subject is judgment for sin. Now, the creed itself does not talk about sin in that way. It would be odd if we said, I believe in sin, as a part of the creed. But if the creed says, and if we confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, then of necessity, it means that sin is something that exists and must be forgiven. So next week, we will take up the topic of the forgiveness of sins. But before we can look at forgiveness, we need to look and see why sin is important and why it must be forgiven. We're going to be looking at several texts uh, this morning. For ease, they are printed in your bulletin, all except... You know how they say to err is human? There is one typographical error in the bulletin. We're not going to be looking at Psalm 54, 1 through 4, but we're going to be looking at Psalm 51, 1 through 4. So you might want to put your finger in that psalm in your Bible. The rest are included in your bulletin. If you would now give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Beginning in the New Testament, with Paul's letter to the Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James 2, verse 10. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. And now Ephesians chapter 4. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 8 Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Thanks be to God for His holy word. Let's pray for its blessing upon us. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we ask this morning that You would use Your word, that it would take deep root in our hearts, that it would enlighten our minds, 
that we, O Lord, might know you, serve you, and love you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we will be looking at the topic of sin. For many of us, this is not an upbeat, hopeful topic to think about. As a matter of fact, as a result, many in our society have tried to do away completely with not only the word sin, but even the concept of sin, because it is depressing, it is limiting, it makes us accountable. And this has reached its way into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each week, you have been noticing, we've been going through statements that were given to Americans, including self-identified evangelical Christians about the foundations of the faith. This morning, we look at two concerning sin. This statement was given and people were asked whether they agreed with it. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 54%, a majority of evangelical Christians, disagreed with that statement. They said, in essence, God doesn't care about little sins. They don't bother him so much. It shouldn't surprise us then that the second statement which was given, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. That a majority of evangelicals agreed with that statement. That once again, everybody sins just a little bit. God's not so concerned with that. Most people are just good and fine. Now this is in stark contrast to the central story of the Bible that begins in Genesis, that says sin is wickedness and evil, rebellion against God, meriting eternal death. And that is the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ became man, lived a perfect life, suffered at the hands of sinners, and died and rose again. If sin is no big deal, then really Jesus is no big deal. He should have never bothered to come. And so this morning, I'd like us to see what the Bible teaches about sin. Two things. First, the universality of sin. All sin. And second, the judgment for sin. What sin does to us. The universality of sin and the judgment for sin. But let's begin then, just for a moment, with a little bit of background context introduction to think about the distinction between what the world thinks about sin and what the Bible teaches about sin. So what does the world teach about sin? Now, for many of us, we say the world teaches nothing about sin. It doesn't like the word. It doesn't ever want to use the word. Well, Just because the world doesn't use the word sin doesn't mean they don't have a category that sin fits into. All you have to do is watch the news. You see people that are outraged that certain things are happening. That implies that those things are wrong. We see a great deal of judgmentalism in our society today. It seems that you can't go ten minutes without seeing some company being boycotted or some person being called out, or some person being stalked or yelled at. 
You see, the world has a concept of sin, but the difference is it all revolves around me. No, I don't mean just me, me. I mean the royal me. All of us me's. You see, society's concept of sin revolves around the individual. When is something wrong? Well, obviously it's because I don't like it. That makes it wrong. What is something unjust? Well, because I think it's unfair. I'm judge and jury. I get to make the judgment about what is right and what is wrong. Now, this should be something that is easy for us to get our arms around. Any of us who have ever lived in a household with more than one sibling. You know how that works. When something wrong is done by a sibling... Immediately we appeal to justice, to mom and dad. You've got to correct this. This is wrong. I have been wrong. You have to punish him. You have to punish her. But then when I do the same thing, what's the response? Who, me? Oh, that's not really a big deal, is it? No, 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 no. You don't need to worry about that. Don't bother mom and dad with that. Right? Justice for others, not for us. Because you see, if we really think about it, no one believes that there is no standard to life. If there really were no standard, life would be chaos, right? Could you imagine driving down the street where there were no red or green lights to tell you whether to stop or go? And the rule of the road was, if you feel like it, go through the intersection. I don't know about you, but I would give up driving. Because I would be sure to be wrecked every single time I went out. Right? So no one honestly says there's no standard, because they don't want to live with that kind of chaos. What they really want to do is they want to make up their own standard. The question really is, who gets to make the standard for what is right and what is wrong? This is something that goes back centuries in philosophy. There is an old pithy statement that says, who watches the watchers? Who guards the guardians? You see, they're the ones making the rules. Who makes sure they keep the rules? We've seen something a little bit more mundane with that in the past few months. You've seen it. You know what it's called? Fake news. What's fake news? And who decides what's fake news? Oh, it's the news people, isn't it? They decide what's fake and what's not. You see, we want to make standards for ourselves. We want to control the standards and be the judge. And guess where that leads us? It leads us to a place where I can never do anything wrong. And where everyone else must pay for everything that they do against me. This is the world's view of sin. But the Bible has a very different view of sin. It defines sin as wickedness. As something that is wrong objectively. An old-fashioned word, iniquity. Actions that are unjust and are wrong and that can be objectively determined to be so. We notice them, particularly when they are done against people. 
And these actions apply to everyone. So, to take a story from the Old Testament, from 1 Kings chapter 21. You may remember King Ahab, the king of Israel. Ahab was not exactly a very good king. But he was the king. He was in charge. And he went out one day, and he saw a plot of land that someone else owned, and he said to himself, I want that. And so what he did was, he went about to steal and murder to get that plot of land that wasn't his. Now, he was the king. But even the king is under God's law. Even the king is under the standards of right and wrong. And that was sinful. It was wicked. It was wrong. No matter who you are, there is a standard. The Bible also describes sin as overreaching, specifically overreaching the law of God. There is a Bible word called transgression that you may be familiar with. It's not the kind of word you use in everyday conversation. You don't say to your daughter, Dear, I believe you have transgressed against me. But this word has meaning, and it's why the Bible uses it, because what it means is to go over, to cross a line. Now, I believe that many of you have used that kind of language, haven't you? You said to your children, don't cross that line. It's right here. You're coming up against it. Turn around. You see, when we cross the line, we sin. And the question then comes up, who gets to draw the standard? Who gets to draw the line? And the Bible makes it very clear that God draws the line. It's not a majority vote. It's not what society believes generally is true. It's what God has said in His Word. And when we transgress His law and transgress His Word, we sin. There's a third way that the Bible describes sin. It's with a word that means missing the mark. You may have heard this before from a preacher that the main word in the New Testament that means sin is a word that means to miss the mark. Now, I think sometimes that makes us a little bit too comfortable with sin because we think, well, okay, so I don't hit the bullseye. I'm in the outer ring. I'm in the ring next to the bullseye ring. Not everybody can hit the mark. Nobody's perfect, right? But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about missing the mark. It doesn't mean our humanness stops us from hitting the mark. The same word is used in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, when it describes how the Israelites did not cross into the promised land. That they fell short of God. They fell short of crossing into the promised land. And the reason is, is that they were at fault. Missing the mark is not a part of our humanness. It's because we are at fault. So then what does the Bible particularly say about sin? We've seen the general parameters of sin in the Bible. The first thing that the Bible tells us is that all have sinned. We see that very directly in Romans 3.23. Now, we all have an innate sense of sin, don't we? Sometimes we laugh it off. We say, well, nobody's perfect. But that implies that everybody's imperfect. 
everybody falls short. If we have a little bit more introspection, we see that the things that we do create problems for other people. We do things that we regret, that we wish we hadn't done. If we do even more soul-searching, we realize that we hurt others when we do not get our way. This is sin. And it is something that is a part of all of our lives. The Bible makes this clear. No one is exempt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this tells us that the law of God has been laid out for us and that we have transgressed against it. And this comes from the very beginning. Our first father, Adam, sinned. Now, there is theological speculation. How long did it take Adam to sin? Was it the day he was created? The week he was created? The month he was created? The Bible doesn't tell us. But the one thing that the Bible seems to imply is that it wasn't a very long time. Adam and Eve didn't live for 40 years before they sinned. Sin came right in upon creation. That's why Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. He says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Just like our father Adam, we have all sinned. There is none who is innocent. The sin that Adam brought in has spread to each and every one of us. We understand this if we just observe people, don't we? Have you ever observed a baby? A baby asleep with their head on the pillow and that sweet angelic face. And you think there's nothing more pure, more beautiful, more innocent than the baby. And then have you ever seen the baby when the baby hasn't gotten what it wants to eat? And you can see all the way down the baby's throat as the baby screams and yells and kicks and flails. You see, sin is a part of us. We can mask it at times. There are times when it doesn't manifest itself, but all have sinned, the scripture says, and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7 puts it this way, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And the important thing is, is that it doesn't really matter whether we believe this is true or not. It doesn't change the reality of the world. You can say, I don't believe in gravity, and that is not going to make you float to the ceiling. It's the reality of the world. But so what if we do sin? If everyone sins, how big of a deal is sin? And usually what we say to ourselves is, Well, I'm not as bad as others. They're worse sinners than I am. Now, I hate to tell you this. That's not a very good sliding scale. Because I guarantee you, there are murderers on death row who can point to other people in prison who are worse than they are. And that doesn't make them good. You see, that kind of a scale is an excuse. We try to be as bad as we can, just not... So bad as to draw attention to ourselves. But the truth is, we don't really even know how bad we are. 
The Bible tells us that sin deceives us. We don't even realize how much we are sinning, how wicked we are. Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The scripture tells us that we do not have the ability to understand the depth of our sin. Because God is the one who makes the standard. God is the one who declares what sin is. So the least possible sin actually deserves punishment. This is what James says in James 2. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. If you don't have a good understanding of the breadth of God's law, I've got an afternoon assignment for you. Go home and read the entirety of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, and all of Deuteronomy. And that's just the original Old Testament law. It's going to take you the better part of a day just to read it. Let alone to do all of it. And what James says is, if you did everything and didn't at one point, you are guilty of all. And that's because God's law is not a mostly thing. God's not, law is not just we mostly obey, we mostly understand it. The standard is perfection and all. Now think about this for a minute. What would you say if I invited you over to our home for dinner and I wanted to serve you dinner on a mostly clean plate? If I said, well, you know, we've got this dog named Tucker and he got at the plate a bit, but it's mostly clean. And for, to refresh you, to drink, I'll give you a drink that is mostly free of poison. I guarantee it. You see, it doesn't sound so good now, does it? But you see, when we look at God's law, and God's law that reflects the character of God, who is perfectly holy, we think that God could accept us mostly obeying His law, mostly submitting to Him. Just a little bit of rebellion isn't too bad, right? Just a little bit of wickedness is okay. You see, the scripture does not allow us this excuse. It tells us that the nature of sin is such that it deserves punishment. To fail at one point is to bring the guilt of all. We are caught. We are guilty. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. It doesn't say most. It doesn't say the most important ones. It says all the things. And that's because the curse falls on those who rebel against God. And every sin, no matter how small we try to make it, is in essence rebellion against God. You see, at its root, all sin is against God. And that brings us to the third thing that we see. That is that all sin is against God. Now that does not mean that 
There is no sin against a person. It's, sin against God is not exclusive of sinning against people. Because after all, God is the Lord of all and He has created all people in His image. And when we sin against others, we sin against the Lordship of God and we sin against the form that He has created. This is what makes sin so horrible. But if we think about sin as being against God, it takes away our excuses. Think about all the ways we excuse sin. We excuse sin if no one finds out. Have you ever had the occasion where you do something and you realize you shouldn't have done it and you do a double take? Did anybody see me? Okay, I got away with that. No, you didn't, because guess who saw you? God. God sees all things. So when we think about sin as being against God, that excuse is ripped away. Another excuse we like to use is, well, it didn't do that much damage. There's not that much harm. But when we sin against the living God, our creator, sustainer, and redeemer, how can we say that damage is small? Because in the majesty of the person, the damage is magnified. If you were to slap someone on the back here at church, would that be the same level of magnitude as if you slapped the president? No. Because there is an aspect to the majesty of the person or the office that applies to God. What happens is when we sin and when we say it's not against God, it's not that important, we are daring to speak for God. And we shouldn't. Now, Scripture gives us a wonderful example of this in Psalm 51. You may know the background to Psalm 51, which is found in 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11 describes for us how the time came when all the kings go out to war. All the kings except David. He stayed home. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He abandoned his duty. And while he was shirking his job, while he had abandoned his duty, he went after something that wasn't his. He saw another man's wife and wanted her. Now, we have to understand, it's not as if David had never known love. And if this was his only chance at love, and they were star-crossed lovers and he couldn't help himself. David had more wives than anybody. David didn't need another wife. He just wanted another woman, even though she belonged to another man. And then what did David do? He tried to hide his sin, didn't he? He tried to bring Uriah back and to make Uriah go into his home so that he could again get away scot-free, that no one would know what he had done. But there was a problem. Uriah was an honorable man. And he didn't go to his house. He said, how can I go and be and sleep in comfort when the king's army is out in the field? And so he slept out by the king's door. Now David didn't know what to do. Do you see the progression here? The lying. The deceiving. And now David says to his general, put Uriah in the place of the battle where he will likely be killed. Because if Uriah is killed, then... My sin will say secret. Now, what could have possibly been a worst sin against Uriah? 
Here is a man who was loyal to David, fighting for him, and David had stolen his wife, lied to him, deceived him, and had him murdered. We would expect Psalm 51 to say, against Uriah, against Uriah I have sinned. But what does David say? He says to the Lord, against you, listen, you only I have sinned. Now, that doesn't mean that David doesn't believe he sinned against Uriah. But what it means is, he realizes the magnitude of his sin and that it is against God and the horribleness of the sin that he committed against Uriah pales in comparison to his sin against God. Murder, adultery, and lying pales in comparison to the rebellion against God. You see... Our view of sin must be linked to our view of God. The second thing we see here this morning is the judgment for sin. What sin brings to us, what it does to us. What are the effects of sin? After all, if everyone sins, how bad can it be? And we can be caught acknowledging the reality of sin, and yet try to minimize its effects. But even though most Americans, the survey tells us, believe that sin doesn't really affect us too much, that it doesn't lead to damnation, that it doesn't stop us from being good, the Bible tells us another story. The Bible tells us that sin alienates us from life and from God. Paul says this, In Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul has been describing the gracious work of God. He wants us to know what Jesus has done. He wants us to know what difference Jesus makes in our lives. And he wants us to know what effect that has on the way we live. And so he compares the work of Jesus to the work of sin. And he says in verse 18... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. What Paul tells us is that sin makes us unable to understand reality. It alienates us from God and it leads to more sin. You see, sin is like a blindfold over our eyes. We may think we can see, but we can't. And this is worse than not knowing. It is an actual blindness. We become unable to understand the world, unable to understand ourselves and reality. And this in turn leads us away from God because we are meant to have a relationship with God. And sin breaks that relationship. This is what happened at the very first in the Garden of Eden. Adam, who walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Adam, who spoke to God after his sin, became afraid, became ashamed, and he hid. Sin broke that relationship that Adam had with God. And what happens to us is that relationship that we have with God is broken and dulled. And we do not know God because sin has dulled our hearts and our minds. 
we are cut off from God who is the source of all life. And as Paul tells us, we become callous and dead. There is no restraint on our actions anymore. All self-control is lost. Sin always leads to more sin. Let me give you an example that's familiar to many of us. Do you know what happens when you lie? What happens as a consequence to you telling a lie? Is it not almost inevitably a second lie to cover up the first lie? And then don't you wind up with a third lie to cover up the second lie that is covering up the first lie? Lying is a downward spiral. There's no end to it. This is why it is intentional that police investigators keep asking criminals questions over and over and over again because they know they will tell so many lies they can't remember the lies that they told. Oh, I was there on Tuesday. I was there on Tuesday. Well, on Wednesday when I was there, oh, wait a minute. Were you there Tuesday or were you there Wednesday? Because I thought you said Tuesday. Didn't he say Tuesday? He said Tuesday. Well, but now he's saying Wednesday. I guess we've caught him in a lie. You see, that's what sin does. There's no stopping sin. It's like downward momentum that cannot be stopped. And this is something that comes to us as a judgment. It's not that we are judged for continuing to sin. A judgment on sin is to lead to more sin. To abandon the truth and righteousness. There's a second thing that the Bible tells us that sin does. It enslaves. Now, this is ironic because most people think that sinning is being free. Right? Do you remember all the calls to free love and to be yourself, do what you want to do? But you see, what does this lead to? It leads to death. It leads to disease. It leads to heartache. It leads to brokenness. You see, we think sin is being free, but in sinning, we become enslaved to sin. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 8. He first tells us that true freedom comes from knowing the truth and from following Him. We are most free when we know God's truth. We are most free when we follow Jesus, not when we go to our own desires. Because that is how God created us. He created us to know His Word and to follow Him. But very many people don't understand that, right? You talk to people out and about and they'll say, What? You mean freedom isn't doing whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want? This is when... Reality comes home. It's like when, for the first time, you move out in high school, after graduating high school or college, and you say to yourself, Woo, I'm free. I'm going to do whatever I want. You know, Dad kept telling me to shut the lights off. I'm leaving my lights on all the time. Until you get the electric bill that you have to pay. Then what do you do? You shut the light off. I am going to eat whatever I want for dinner. If I want to have chocolate cake every night for dinner, I'm going to have chocolate cake every night for dinner. Until you're so sick to your stomach 
that you can't get out of bed. You see, just because we think doing whatever we want will be good does not make it so. Reality does not change based upon our attitude. And what Jesus tells us is, is that sin makes us slaves to its desire. We can't get free from sin. There's a a wonderful illustration of this in a commercial that has been making the rounds the last few years. It shows young people out doing things that are fun. They're at a dance. They're at a football game. And one of the young people has a small, obnoxious person screaming at them. You've got to leave the dance. I don't care about your girlfriend. Come on, we're going outside. I don't care what the score is in the game. You don't need to watch the game. We're going outside. And you wonder to yourself, what's going on here? And then we realize that it's a commercial about smoking. And the little person isn't a little obnoxious person. It's a cigarette. And the idea is that smoking has control over your life. And even if you would rather do other things, it won't let you because of its desire. That's a picture of what sin looks like. Even if you would rather do other things, sin will not let you out of its clutches. It will bring you to more and more sin. It enslaves you. But this is not the worst thing. Because being blind is bad. But there's something worse. Being a slave is bad. But there's something worse, isn't there? The worst thing is death. Because there's no return from death. It's the ultimate end of sin. It is the ruin that we are brought to with sin. James puts it this way in James chapter 1. He says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, leads to death. It's the natural progression of sin. It always goes in that way. Just as as people, we naturally, as we age, grow. You don't shrink. The natural course of life is to grow. The natural course of sin is death. We cannot escape it. We may think we are the exception, but we are not. Because apart from Jesus Christ, The desire to sin always leads to sin and then death. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. That is what you are owed for sin. You have purchased death for yourself. You have earned death by your sin. Well, this is bad news, isn't it? Everybody sins. And all sins deserve punishment. And sin makes us the enemy of God. Sin enslaves us. Sin leads to death. What do we do with this bad news? The truth from God's word is that it's actually good news. Because you see, when we understand how bad sin is, we stop treating it with kid gloves. We stop toying with it. We run from it. And that's why Paul can say, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we understand the truth of sin and how horrible it is, we will flee, not looking back. We will be like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, putting our fingers in our ears so we cannot hear the call of those who would have us stay, and we run screaming, life, life. We would be like someone in a burning building who was willing to jump several stories just to get out of certain death. This is what the scripture tells us. Knowing the bad news brings us the good news. The free gift of God comes to those who are sinners. Do you know that you are a great sinner? Well, then you must know that you have a great Savior. For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than all our sin. Just as there is no sin so small as to not deserve eternal punishment, there is no sin so great that the blood of Jesus Christ will not cover it and bring forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel. We need to know the bad news first so that we can embrace the good news of grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.